This is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the executive producer and co-host of the show. Joining me in the virtual studio is co-founder and principal co-host Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC. At Pop Health Week, we engage industry leadership and stakeholder voices spanning payer, provider, patient, vendor, and regulatory communities in population health best practices and strategy. Connect with us via www.popupstudio.productions or follow and direct message me on Twitter at Greg Masters, MPH, and that's Greg with two Gs. On today's episode, we cover select top-line takeaways from the 41st J.P. Morgan Healthcare Investor Conference, the go-to healthcare innovation event launched back in the day by Hamburgton Quist, an investment bank headquartered in San Francisco, specializing in tech enablement of life science and biotech innovation. Since Hamburgton Quist's acquisition by then-Chase Manhattan Bank, its gravity, footprint, and reach has grown exponentially. So, Fred, pivoting to your perspective here, let's drill a little bit into population health, progress, trends, resistance, challenges, whatever. Looking back 2022, from where you sit, the work you've done with clients, what do you see in terms of top-of-mind accomplishments in the population health management or science space? And might there be a sector where you see most of that, where you can cite or point to most of that innovation? Yeah, it was a fascinating year because while we've sort of chosen to maybe forget 2022, given that it was another year of COVID and really continued to create all kinds of major waves across the healthcare system as they tried to manage that and then begin to get back to some semblance of normal. I think from a population health perspective, we really did see the final complete resonating of this whole issue of health equity and social determinants of health. Everybody's now talking it, but they're not only talking it, they're trying and beginning to do something about it. We saw that in discussions with some of our guests, whether it was Abner Mason or Amelia Bedry from NCQA, discussing that these are areas that we'll now see the reviewers focus on, let alone Abner with his company, Same Sky Health, and beginning to 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 get that out into a larger audience of, of payers, et cetera. But really, this idea of NCQA now measuring this and asking for payers as well as providers to begin to provide some measurement about social terms of health and what they're doing regarding health equity. And we also see Medicaid doing that rather substantially. So ultimately, it then gets to what's the next level? Can we take these measures, these inconsistencies we find in the healthcare system, these um, disparities, and begin to put in programs to address them? And I think that's hopefully what we begin to see coming out of 2023 in a population health basis. It's great to talk about it. It's great to begin measuring it. Um, what you don't measure doesn't matter. And so it's really important to that that's a good start. But I think the question becomes, how do we fund this stuff? And it's once again gets back to our fee-for-service system that you and I have talked about for probably decades now, which is... Um, 
do we need another CPT code because we've added something else versus can we finally move this to a value-based system where it's inherently built into the payment model and you actually do better by addressing those issues, creating health, creating healthier communities. And hopefully we get to that around population health. I think that's probably the one big area I see. We're having these little spinoffs of AI and the use of that. There's all kinds of apps and digital tech thrown out there. The question is, does any of it work? And uh, and at some point, we've got to get to outcomes around that. So from a population health approach, it's great to have all this technology, um, but ultimately we need to see it implemented in a way that creates results. Okay, how about some names? Give me a name or two where you see the the modeling, the leadership here in some of these chronic issues. So um, I think some of the, the, in terms of chronic care management, I do believe some of the larger hospital systems are beginning to look at this and say, how do we do it? Obviously, we've seen practices that tend to be focused on a primary care model, the the, uh, IORAs that Rushika came up with, or Oak Street or the others that claim to have a better way to begin to manage individuals with chronic disease. They essentially have to create that if they want to be successful in Medicare. You know, the average Medicare beneficiary has a number of chronic illnesses. I think the average is on eight medications, things like that. So if you're not able to put in some sort of a chronic care management or population health approach, you're probably not going to be successful in that environment. Um, But we're still waiting to see there's not a lot of data out there showing that, hey, this has really moved the needle substantially in terms of outcomes. I think we'll get there, but overall, as a country, we still have a long way to go. Okay, so, you know, maybe drill a little deeper into that. Biggest challenges for 2023, and and where do you see the leadership most likely coming from? I think the biggest challenge is actually taking that step instead of just putting your toe in the water with value-based care to just dive in. We're beginning to see some of the larger healthcare systems say we're getting a decent percentage or a substantial number of our contracts are value-based in some way. And value-based can be everything from an extra payment for hitting quality measures, which is fairly low-level value, to taking on risk. Now, there's a concern about taking on risk obviously. But if you're able to begin to make better clinical decisions because you no longer have some of this oversight regarding, well, we're going to off that, we're going to prior off this, we're going to, but we're going to go ahead and give you the option to manage these patients as you best see fit, which is really what we should be doing with primary care physicians. That should be their role. They are that expert. Let's go see them let them use their expertise, and then um, let them create value, which they can do. As remember, you met, we talked about this way back when with Oak Street, that um, value creation and value extraction. I want to be able to extract the value that I've created. And when you begin to create contracts that allow physicians to do that, I think we'll be in better shape. Some of the, um, you know, we've seen some of the larger healthcare systems begin to do this, um, but it's still fairly early. And um, hopefully we can move that along a little quicker. Yeah, and there's really been no let up in the urge to merge, I think, as witnessed by the recent, uh, is it Atrium Advocate uh, 501c3 mega merger? <laughs> Absolutely. And what's what's fascinating to try to watch this is to watch how does this happen as we see more and more practices get acquired? 
either by healthcare systems, by payers, by VC companies? And is is that ultimately taking away some of the control that needs to be within the physician's hands? And that's that's one of the fears you see and you hear about it a lot, um, particularly from physicians. But so many of them now are within owned practices that it's a it's a difficult thing to see how we get there um, as as we continue to see this aggregation. Right. It's um, you know, it's safe to say that um, we're in another wave of integration. Um, you might say PPMC 2.0 or 3.0 or wherever we are on the iteration scale. But, um, you know, back in the 90s and early aughts, uh, the, the expectation was that these managed care organizations, joint ventures, PHOs, IPAs, MSOs that support them, et cetera, were going to take over the whole world. And there were going to be no more independent doctors. And as it turns out, there was a whole lot of carcasses left after these business models collapsed as Ponzi schemes. So fast forward 20 years. We're in a different mindset as to what an MSO looks, how it supports a risk-bearing entity. Is it not just more layers, but is it value and value from the perspective of really ultimately the triple aim, you know, better care, better experience of care, better outcomes at lower per capita cost. And all of the initiatives, all of the innovation, everything we've talked about over the last several years, including themes at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, have all been about moving the needle in that direction. And honestly, there hasn't been much movement. So let me ask you to step back just a little bit. What does it mean to assume risk? And why might that be such a hard proposition to wrap one's brain around? You know, when when I talk about assuming risk, it, it's at a population level. And so the ultimate assumption of that, obviously, is some sort of a capitated payment to manage this population. And the advantage to that is, from a provider perspective, is one, you have a known source of revenue. And we saw that with COVID, where those who were on fee-for-service contracts essentially saw their business just evaporate um, because nobody was coming in. And uh, so it, it protects against that. And it also should, if done correctly, give the physicians the leeway to treat the patients as they should be treated and to provide the services to, to them at using their expertise, which they clearly bring to the table. And so I've always looked at it as a way to ultimately, particularly from a primary care uh, level, put the physicians in charge. And um, what happens is when you begin to think about that as a risk, obviously as a practice, if you're an individual practitioner, that's a pretty big risk you're taking on. And so we need to provide some levels of protection associated with that risk, whether that's reinsurance or some sort of stopgap stuff or things like that. But I think at the end of the day, um, it, it creates a model that ultimately could be better. And the reason I use the word could is because there's nothing wrong with fee-for-service payments until people take advantage of the system. And uh, and you begin to see pricing changes and, and utilization issues and all of that. And it, the same thing could happen with capitation in that you could see a net negative utilization pattern, but and that's how you make your money. Now, the question becomes now, as physicians get acquired, is how much decision-making authority do they have? Or is it wow, we just we just bought these practices. We've got this huge chunk of debt over here we need to pay off. So let's just gen some business. And I think back to a, a number of years ago, and I, I won't say specifically where this was, but a major uh, health system, a major hospital system had a direct contract with a really large payer. 
employer and they were losing $10 million a month. And literally the CEO of the integrated doctors group sent out a note to the orthopedists and cardiac surgeons and said, bring in everything you got, you know, just bring it in. We need all these surgeries. Now, are they all need to have that surgery? I don't know. As we've seen from Walmart, sometimes these studies show you get to the right centers of excellence, et cetera, you get much better outcomes. Not necessarily everybody needs the, the surgery. So there are some real issues there. And I think that's the question as we begin to see these aggregations. What's the underlying philosophy and ethical beliefs of the organizations that are doing this? Right. And that all comes together in a comp plan that's really driven by a productivity formula. So, you know, the sentiment indicators I've seen from, um, you know, physicians, trade associations, uh, and other third parties monitoring sentiment is uh, there's more burnout out there uh, than there has ever been. The, 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 uh, <clears throat> the, ad, the mood is, is, uh, is rather, uh, I don't know, bearish amongst physicians and clinicians. Healthcare is a rough space for clinicians right now. It's really not only because of all of the pressure financially, et cetera, but the, just the whole interaction with patients has changed. And right now they've been brutal and really make it rough. And you see this in some of these interactions, whether it's in the clinics or the hospitals between the patients and the, the clinicians who are trying to write thing and they're getting screamed at, yelled at, who knows what else. Um, and that's very frustrating to watch. Um, you know, and this sort of raises a bigger issue, Greg. We've got the uh, J.P. Morgan conference going on right now. You've been paying a lot of attention to it. You know, here we're talking about aggregation. Obviously, there's been news, rumors, et cetera, coming out of there. So what's going on at J.P. Morgan? And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to a special edition of Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio featuring select top lines from the 41st J.P. Morgan Healthcare Investor Conference with my guest, business partner, and lead co-host, Fred Goldstein. Well, for those who, who may not be in the know, it's kind of considered the go-to event of the year from uh, an investor standpoint. Um, it's become really a biotech showcase. Neither you or I are there. We're kind of monitoring the tweet stream and pinging and participating at that level. But, um, you know, I, I some of the things that happened there pretty much drive an agenda for the year, not just from an investment standpoint, but from a, from a mergers and acquisition, a channel partnering perspective, how for-profit uh, enterprises merge with nonprofit or tax exempt organizations and move the needle in their mission. All this stuff kind of comes together. It's fertile ground for that. So some of the things that occurred to me and something you and I know a little bit about is uh, what's, in evidence, there's the continued penetration of big tech into legacy healthcare. And, and therein, you know, when we talk legacy healthcare, we talk about these sleepy, calcified organizations that are driven by momentum versus purposeful innovation and agility in, in the innovation space. So top of mind is this um, after apparently Oak Street Health, which um, gave a presentation there was some sense that it wasn't the most upbeat mood. And then shortly there that their business model may have sort of hit a wall or things growth is slowing down or something like that. But apparently after the presentation, the rumor, <laughs> there was news that um, Oak Street and CVS Health are in negotiations for acquisition merger. It looks like it's an acquisition by CVS Health of Oak Street. So 
what does that mean? Because one might say, gee, this is um, the marriage of two basically non-aligned players. How, how does it make sense? Or what do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. You, you know, we've we've talked about some of this on uh, some of our other shows and this whole idea of aggregation of, of these primary care networks. And obviously, CVS is looking at a couple of different models. They've they've launched a few, you know, in, in-house models. They've acquired some other companies and now they're going out and getting potentially getting an Oak Street, which is, you know, really big in that Medicare space. And the question becomes, um, how does that fit? How do how do they and Oak Street, as we remember way back when, was really innovative. They got in the Medicaid space and realized maybe that's not the right place to be and went into Medicare. And so now the question is, do the, can they be still be innovative? Um, how does that fit with Aetna, et cetera? Right. So it, would it be fair to dumb it down, so to speak, and profile what each player brings to the party and simply saying, well, CVS Health retail pharmacy play with an investment and in service dr- delivery in their retail network, whereas Oak Street is a managed care organization initially focused, as you say, in Medicaid, but now oriented towards Medicare, and in this case, Medicare Advantage. <laughs> uh, they may have an MSSP, an ACO in the standard program, but for the most part, uh, these are not uh, necessarily aligned books of business from a strategy perspective. Well, you've left out that other big chunk, Aetna, you know, oh, yeah, this, right. this yeah. subset the, with the health, with the health plan. So, so in essence, it may be, you know, this triangulation between CVS owning Oak street and Aetna being able to use that network, assuming they're very efficient for their Medicare advantage, you know, and Aetna has done some other unique models, banner health, et cetera. So maybe it's an opportunity to do something like that. And at the same time, bring in a little more substantive primary care than just the typical CVS minute clinic uh, deal in the, in the pharmacy. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch if that actually does occur. And we're seeing everybody look at that. You know, you've got Amazon with one medical. What's really fascinating too out of this is there, you're now saying there are two big big players in the street. There's United and there's CVS. And what are they going? How are they going to compete? And uh, as United obviously is the largest employer of physicians in the country right now, other than I think the VA. Yeah, right. Those are some powerful dynamics. I forgot about the Aetna umbrella with the uh, with the license because there, there you have the whole range of you know traditional indemnity. Uh, type PPO products versus full-on risk HMOs, whether it be commercial or in the senior marketplace. So yeah, apps, apps, they're they're what the 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 umbrella that maybe brings together what what might seem like a portfolio of compatible companies operating for a mutual for a common objective. So you know, in this theme of tech influencing what's going on in healthcare and how much of JPM is focused on tech infusion into innovation, uh, somebody we know who's been in the Twitter sphere for quite some time, fellow by the name of Dan Moreau, <laughs> had an interesting tweet earlier today. Um, and he writes, quote, I don't get the math out of the JPM 23 conference. Billions invested over 10 plus years. Premiums rise every year. Life expectancy going down. The HAQ index is 81.3, which is the intense position. What is HAQ index? I think it has to do with your health quality measure. So it's a, it's a quality metric. The health assessment questionnaire, apparently. So he asks, where's all the investment going and to what purpose I'm asking for a friend? 
So um, it, it's it's something we've been discussing and people have been discussing for not quite as long as I've lived, but you know, certainly the last 30 years is we've continued to see these rising costs. We continue to see new technologies introduced and we continue to see healthcare costs go up and major indicators of health status of our country go the wrong direction or not move positively. And it's, it's really um, that whole theory of, it gets back to Shrek. <laughs> Onions have layers. Healthcare has layers. And every time we add something new, we add another layer. We don't take anything out. We never subtract. And so we put in new technology and it just adds a new layer in cost. We put in this new system and it's a layer in cost. And at some point, we've got to say, we're going to create efficiencies. We're going to remove some things. I think that's what Dan's getting at. He's obviously been frustrated about this. He's written considerably on this issue. And um, JP Morgan kind of exemplifies, in a sense, some of this because it is the financiers and the, and the big companies and the small startups looking for money who are driving this. And yes, it's an 18.3% of our GDP. It's a huge chunk of money. It doesn't take much of that falling off into somebody's business to create a profitable business. Yeah. So that particular tweet, you know, the question is, he's he's right on the money. I don't know how receptive the market's going to be to that type of commentary. It was retweeted twice, quoted once, and has five links with 703 views. You know, that should have a much bigger footprint uh, in the uh, amp visibility domain, uh, in my opinion. But yeah, I, I definitely. Another obvious theme uh, with uh, OpenAI and chat GPT dominating the airwaves on uh, programming and coding and all that stuff. Uh, what about AI in the healthcare? There's been a lot of buzz since it was initially introduced a couple of years ago, and we're hearing more talk at uh, multiple levels. Where, what, are you, what are you following? What are you seeing that might be of interest? Yeah, this was another fascinating area. Obviously, a lot of discussion on digital and AI and data and make it interoperability and sharing, et cetera. And uh, Rasu Shrestha, another uh, really well-known uh, physician, thought leader, innovator, digital health expert, said, you know, AI is going to change the world after listening to uh, Jamie Dimon talk about it at the conference. And I, I, I agree in a sense and, and said to him specifically in a tweet, yes, it will at Rasu Shrestha, but for what? It needs to be in the right hands, with the right intentions, with the right non-biased full data set, with the right model to do the right thing. If not, it could lead us further astray, but it can be done. And that ultimately gets to the issue we face. Um, this is a great potential technology, but we've already seen examples where it didn't work or it worked wrong. And for example, the bias in the AI algorithms that came in that the hospitals were using that resulted in African-Americans not getting appropriate treatment because they weren't in the data sets used to build the models. And that's why at the end of the day, as we build these things, we really need to ensure What's the underlying reason we're doing it and what do we really want to get out of it to make sure we do it right? And that's my biggest fear. AI has incredible potential, but it could also have the potential to, <laughs> to take the system even further in the direction it's in now and, and just pile on the costs. And so I think at the end of the day, 
healthcare, at least, you know, my father was a physician. It really was about helping patients, helping people. And all the individuals, the majority who get into healthcare, that's why they're in it. And if we can have that kind of a mindset and apply it to all of these areas, I think we'd be in much better shape. Yeah, very well said. And th- thanks for uh, thanks for bringing that up. You know, my big fear here in, in you know, big tech, uh, lots of good stuff there, but there's also some incredible downside from privacy on. So um, I'm concerned that it becomes the next shiny object that the we in collectively in the industry sort of worship, you know, and uh, it, but again, is it going to improve? It, where are the benefits? Clinical, administrative, you know, where are we going to see some value here? Premium relief, you know, better care, easier access, happier doctors, more agile, nimble institutions that don't have, that aren't staffed by nurse you know, nursing registries where there's no continuity of care. I mean, we got problems everywhere. So the question is, will it become just another buzzword that gets a lot of copy and conferences organized around, or will there be mere material impact of how this technology makes life better for all of us? Absolutely. And your comment and your list of things was a big ask, <laughs> and, and but it was right on yeah. target. And yeah. I think at the end of the day, the early, early successes with this will be not in the clinical realms, but in the efficiencies created in the operational realms where things like natural language processing and other things can actually make for a more efficient system. And hopefully we're, we're beginning to see some of that with some of the AI. Obviously the buzz always is around the clinical stuff, but I think the operational efficiencies can be much larger. And that's a perfect place to end. So I will say, thanks, Fred. My pleasure. And thanks to you too. Great year so far. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank my colleague and partner for his time and insights today. For more information or to follow Fred's work, go to www.accountablehealthllc.com and do follow him on Twitter via at FS Goldstein. And finally, if you're enjoying our work at Pop Health Week, please like the show and the podcast platform of your choice share with your colleagues, and do consider subscribing to keep up with new episodes as they are published. We stream live on Healthcare Now Radio weekdays at 5.30 a.m., 1.30 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And for you left coasters, 2.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. Pacific. For Pop Health Week, my co-host Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe, everyone. Bye now. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.